Acts 14 today. Turn there in your bulletins or uh, your Bibles. Let's pray. Worthy are you, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Your eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Claiming to be wise, we have become fools, exchanging creator for creation. You've been merciful to us, overlooking times of ignorance. You have called us to repentance, to faith, to life in Christ, to share in his sufferings as well as his glories. Sustain us, we pray, for the journeys and trials ahead of us. And may we live our lives holy unto the Lamb who was slain. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the word. Acts chapter 14. Recall Barnabas and Paul had been uh, cast out essentially from Antioch in Pisidian, and now they're moving on. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly before the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sides with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe and cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, In Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they were scarcely restrained, uh, the people, from offering sacrifice to them. 
But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, and they had been com- where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered with the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And now he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Amen. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Some of us a while back were able to go through Sinclair Ferguson's series, The Christian Basics, uh, the, the video series from uh, Ligonier. And uh, in one episode of that series, he made uh, this comment on Christ's words, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Encouraging words. And I've heard it said, uh, you know, and I think I've said myself, that gates are defensive mechanisms, not offensive mechanisms. So we're supposed to assail uh, the gates of hell. Um, I've been reading The Lord of the Rings for quite some time because I read it at bedtime. I read about two pages and fall asleep. But I'm finally into the, the last book, about halfway done with it. And when I think of the gates, I think of the gates of hell. I think of the black gate of Mordor, right? And, and sometimes there, that gate produces enemies as well as being a defensive mechanism. Uh, but I think Sinclair Ferguson's insight was actually uh, much better and much more clear explanation of, of that uh, saying. He said that the gates of hell, the gates are an Old Testament refuge uh, reference and gates are the city hall of the city. You, you remember uh, Boaz in Ruth sitting at the gates, doing business at the gates of the city. That was the city hall that was the, the place of the organized seat of authority. In other words, gates in this context refer more probably to, to planning, to organization, to strategy. So the gates of hell are where Satan puts together his strategy to attack the church. And those gates will not prevail against Christ's church. Paul calls us to be wary of the devil's strategies. Um, Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil's been waging war over words, over worship uh, since the garden, plotting how he might subvert the authority of God. And yet, what does the Apostle John say in 1 John 3? 
Why did Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil. Here's the way Luke seems to set up his narratives. Uh, There's kind of a a tug-of-war battle going on in the narratives. Uh, Christ and his apostles pull hard one way, the devil pulls back, and they go back and forth a few times, but at the end of each episode, the devil ends up losing. He falls into the mud on his face. That's true of this story as well. Um, It is true... And it will always be the case. Christ and his word will always win. The gates of hell, the strategies of Satan will not prevail against us. The question I think we have to ask and answer for ourselves is, what is it that we perceive of when we think of victory? What is victory to us as Christians? As we'll see today, if we believe comfort is victory or political power and influence is victory or social status or or universal agreement or any number of other things are victory to us, we will be sorely disappointed. But if we view victory, if we view success as the advance of the gospel through suffering with Christ, we won't be put to shame. If we view victory or view success as the advance of the gospel through suffering with Christ, we will not be put to shame. We will not be disappointed. Now, this tug of war, this battle in this episode uh, begins in verse 1 with Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel at the synagogue in Iconium. Recall they've been rejected by the Jews and moved from Antioch, and they said, we'll go to the Gentiles. They shook the dust from their feet at Antioch. Um, but Paul doesn't write off the Jews entirely. It's a matter of principle, it seems, for him. He almost always starts out in a new city, giving the Jews the first opportunity to hear the gospel, to believe in their Messiah. And he does so here as well in Iconium. Um, it says, many believe, but the reception is also a bit cold. In verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So these unbelieving Jews infected the Gentiles um, through deception or planting thoughts of suspicion in their minds. Um, So it was rocky soil at best. And and I love what what Luke says. So they remained for a long time. If it's rocky soil, you'd expect, so they moved on. So they stayed for a long time. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They got stuck in because it was tough. They dug their heels in against the devil's schemes. Luke says in verse 4, But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And wherever they go, this seems to happen. Wherever they go, they're stirring up division in the city. In Acts 17, verse 6, when they're in Thessalonica, uh, they say about Paul and the brothers, these men that are those who have turned the world upside down. They have turned the world upside down. This is what they do wherever they go. Now Calvin points out, I think, 
rightly, that disunity in the city is not desirable. It's not a good thing. Uh, in Custer County, where we moved from, there seems to be a lot of controversy right now, uh, disunity. And I don't know if that's just because Kevin's a Kevin, uh, Kelly's dad's a county commissioner and we hear about it more. Probably that's the case. It's probably true everywhere. But there's a lot of disunity, and it's tragic to hear about all the disunity. It's not good to have disunity in the city. It's very sad, and yet it's a necessary inevitability of the gospel message. Um, as a brief aside, notice it is the gospel that offends and divides. It's the gospel, not our behavior. <laughs> I, I think sometimes we we misrepresent uh, boldness as provocation. I think I'm speaking to myself about two or three years ago. <laughs> we think we think we're meant to suffer for the gospel. And for truth, and then we intentionally provoke a fight, either in the church or in the community, supposing then that we're standing for truth. And then we receive correction about it, and we get this persecution complex, and we say, see how I bear the cross for Christ, as we're provoking people unnecessarily. And that's not right. We should be seeking Christian unity. We should be seeking unity in our communities, in Christ. And we want boldness, but we don't want unnecessary provocation the gospel itself not our behavior should be the offense and it and it will it will offend truth divides and truth unites it unites believers together and oddly truth unites unbelievers as well uh in this passage sinclair ferguson calls these this this instance where the jews and and gentiles come together strange alliances there's strange alliances. Notice Jews and Gentiles who won't eat together are suddenly united against God. They're locking arms in opposition to the gospel. When that kind of odd collusion happens, you know it has to be from the, the, the sources, the gates of hell. It's the strategies of Satan. So Luke in verse 5, he says, An attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to misrepresent them and to stone them. As often has been the case in Acts, uh, persecution only serves, serves to spread the gospel farther, to make the flames of the gospel go farther and quicker. In verse 6, uh, they learned of this, this uh, ploy. They learned of it and fled to Lystra, to Derby, cities of uh, Lake Aonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So, so, kind of in this tug of war, the balance of the tug of war is back toward Paul and the brothers now. And we see a powerful miracle take place in Lystra. Luke says in verse 3 um, that God had been granting signs and wonders to be done by the hands of these men. Um, this he says, and he gives the express purpose of a miracle, is to bear witness to the word of his grace. That, that's what a miracle is. It's a sign, a testimony to the truth of God's revelation. Now some believed, but the whole city was, was galvanized against Paul and his brothers uh, and, and Barnabas and their message uh, in spite of the signs and wonders.
As they depart Iconium and enter Lystra, the resistance is continuing here despite an astounding sign. Uh, In verse 8, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. The first thing we notice about this sign and this story about the sign is it's very much like another story we read in Acts. Acts chapter 3, when Peter heals the lame man in front of the temple. Peter likewise looked intently at the lame man. He had been likewise a man lame from birth. Peter commanded him, stand up and walk. And, and like this man, he did, and he began to leap for joy. So Luke isn't kind of making this all up, and he, he's run out of ideas, so he's kind of throwing this story in again, hoping we won't catch it. Um, these parallel events show that God is with Paul like he was with Peter, and that God is going to the Gentiles as he went to the Jews. And one of the devil's oldest schemes, one of those strategies that he stews on at the gate of hell, how he might afflict the world with evil is perversion. Perversion. Satan loves to just divert the stream of truth just enough so that it goes off to the side and so that it misses the holy city and goes out into the desert. He loves to just one small tweak. He loves to pervert the truth. His perversion here is idolatry, exchanging creator for creation, uh, replacing the immortal God with images of his creation, substituting the words of God with the knowledge of good and evil. Um, Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought an oxen, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Uh, so this event has some uh, history with these people. Uh, there's a, a regional myth in this area that Zeus and Hermes had, had come down in the likeness of men and had sought lodging in the region. Uh, but they were refused lodging a thousand times by a thousand different households. And finally, one old couple welcomes Zeus and Hermes into their little shack and gives them uh, hospitality. And as a result, the, the gods, Zeus and Hermes, take, take these, this older couple up on the mountain and they flood the village. They kill everyone in the town. And as the couple looks down, they see that their home is, is on a little island. It's safe from the flood. And then as they're looking at it, their little shack grows into a temple, a a temple to Zeus. This is the story that's behind these people's logic when they say, uh, in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Saying, we better not screw it up this time. They recognize in these men, in this event, in this healing, divine power. 
And when it dawns on Paul and Barnabas, they don't speak this language. Uh, they're horrified. They say in verse 14, they tore their garments, a sign, a sign of grief. They rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? Why are you doing these things? I think in our society we would never say this. We, we, have, to, we have to respect our culture's perception of the divine. We can't say, why are you doing these things? But Paul and Barnabas boldly say, your response is a wrong response. Stop it. They say, we also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. He says, turn to a God who actually lives. Turn away from vain things. By the way, the worship of Zeus at this point is probably 1,500 years old. This is not some guy with like a stump and a chainsaw out there, you know, worshiping. This has history. This has tradition. This has roots. And he says, turn away from vain things. You're being foolish. And Zeus, Zeus was the sky god. And Paul says, worship the God who made heaven and earth. These people are not Jews, um, so he doesn't quote to them from the Psalms and proclaim, uh, Jesus is your Messiah. That would make any sense to them. But he, he presents to them scriptural truths in, in light of revelation that they have received, in light of general revelation. He says in 16, In past generations he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, and he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So in short, what what he's getting at is uh, you're impressed with the healing of the lame man. We see that. You think we're divine. You recognize something of divinity in us. Will you consider the message we're preaching? If you like our miracle, consider our message. Will you not consider uh, maybe turning to the living God that we proclaim to you? Calvin here calls this an argument from contraries. He says uh, that this whole section here is one idea, and that is if they had, uh, as if they had said, does the miracle move you? Then give credence to our words. Does the miracle move you? Then give credence to our words. But in verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Um, Even though their message was a direct assault on their traditions, their religious system, uh, it was a call to depart from vain worship and to turn to a different God who they claimed to be the only living God. Even though all of that, the people still kind of wanted to sacrifice some bulls to them. Shows the hardness of the fallen human heart. To love idols. We cling to idols against all reason. That's why we need to be wary as Christians. The scheme of the devil is is to pervert, to distort, to deceive. Um, Prior to our redemption, John says in 1 John 3 that we are the devil's seed. The devil is our father. We follow in the line of Cain. 
Will we continue to devour the forbidden fruit? Because we gaze on it and, and we decide for ourselves that it is pleasant to the eyes and good for food. We stand at the foot of the mountain where God has come to make covenant with us and we fabricate the golden calf. Though we be redeemed from a life of filth, of perversion and abuse, and have been betrothed to a groom who loves us even though he knows us, our hearts are drawn back to a life of prostitution. We want to go back to Egypt. We must remember perversion and diversion don't satisfy. They're accompanied with great fanfare and affection in our own mind's eye, but they're vanity. It's all vain. There is one living God, one God who is truly supplied for all our needs. So we should worship Him. We should seek to come into His presence. We should not listen to the messages of the gates of hell, but listen to the messages He has sent us. So we need to be aware of this tactic of perversion, of, uh, of idolatry, because these tactics have crept into our bones as fallen human beings. Uh, the problem with preaching a huge chunk like this is I have to move past stuff I don't want to move past. <laughs> the advantage is I want you to see the forests for the trees, um, but there's a few things here I, I, I hate to skip over, but we'll have to move on. But maybe we'll come back to it sometime. But things in, the, in 15 through 18 in particular with regard to natural theology and, and general revelation, evangelism, uh, apologetic tactics, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man. But um, yeah, maybe we'll come back to it. But for now, we'll keep marching. As Paul and Barnabas kind of tug back hard on the rope, they manage at least here to, to stem the tide of idolatry. At least they kept them from sacrificing to them. A consistent theme that we see in Acts um, is that as... The Satan's more subtle tactics fail. He gets more and more aggressive. He gets almost frantic, more violent. We've seen it with the Sanhedrin, with the apostles, and with Steve, uh, Stephen, and also with Herod, with James. The, the, the tactics become more violent and more frantic. In verse 19, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. His enemies at this point are rabid. From Antioch to Lystra is about 90 miles. That's like walking from here to Vale because you don't like somebody's teaching. Right? Like that's zeal. You actually have to give them credit for their passion, right? And then through uh, deception, through perversion, through malignment, these Jews, as they arrive, are able to kind of put thoughts into the minds of the crowd. They stir them up, it says. They, they know just what to say. You know, they're whispering in the crowd, how could Paul say that? Did you hear what he said about, about Zeus? They stir up the crowd. Once again, we see this strange alliance. Jews from miles away, Gentiles from Lystra, they band together as a single force against the gospel and stone its messenger. Um, just imagine stoning for a second. They threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. 
And they drag him outside the city, leave him for dead. This is violent persecution. It's horrifying. I mean, think about the PTSD Barnabas must have as, as he's observed this activity. It's a dreadful thought. But it's delightful, once again, to think of the failure of the devil. The devil's like the kid on the playground who becomes so furious at his playmate that he takes a swing, but in so doing, stumbles and falls on his face because he's so worked up. In an effort to yank the rope hard in the tug of war, his feet have slipped from underneath him and he's fallen on his face into the mud. I think if Jesus uh, were a martial artist, his his uh, area of, of expertise would have to be judo. Uh, A a definition of judo that I read is it emphasizes winning in combat by using your opponent's weight and strength as weapons against him while preserving your own mental and physical energy. Isn't that what he does? He doesn't have to do much. He just uses Satan's own strength and weight against him. Now, whether it's just carelessness, that the violent men didn't check for a pulse, uh, whether Paul had a minor concussion and woke up, or whether this was a major miracle, we don't know. But the disciples gathered around Paul, perhaps to pray, and he rose up and went back into the same city. In the city where he was stoned, he went back and continued to preach the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is like a bad weed to these men who hate it, that the more they try to pull it up, the more it propagates. And from Lystra, Paul and Barnabas travel uh, another 80 to 90 miles to Derby, where they preach the gospel and make disciples for the Lord. It says they make many disciples. It sounds like it wasn't as difficult there in Derby. And then they return and go back through all those cities where everybody hated them, where they were despised, rejected, threatened, and stoned. They went back. And here's what's amazing. I'll, I'll get up here and point at the map. Um, so they went to Cyprus, and then they went here, and then they went up to Antioch. And then these cities are in a line down here, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and about... 50, 60 miles from Derby is Paul's hometown of Tarsus. He could have gone home and he went back up and back around and finally sailed back around to Antioch. That's amazing. He decided to go back. They go back uh, for the purpose of exhortation and also to set up church government, to to appoint elders. In verse 23, um, they appoint elders in these cities. And Calvin, interestingly, he points out that the Greek word here used for appoint means actually appointing by raising of hands. So it would seem rather than just Paul and Barnabas picking men and putting them in office, They were actually electing men to office. Uh, The assembly had a say in the appointments. Um, So how very Presbyterian of them. Now, when they could do no more as missionaries, they left the churches um, in God's hands 
who would surely use these elders to strengthen and exhort and lead the churches um, as he saw fit. In verse 23, it says, They did so with prayer and fasting, and they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the church ultimately doesn't depend on you or me or even Barnabas or Paul. It depends on the Lord in whom we have believed. And despite all the vile attacks of the evil one, Paul and Barnabas leave Asia Minor, having turned the world upside down, stirred up all manner of problems, but having been used to plant the church of Jesus Christ in that region. So th- there's no question here who the victor of the battle was in Asia Minor. As they depart the region, uh, preaching as they go in the various towns, and finally, after what I saw, anywhere between four to ten month journey, um, which is kind of a wide span, but a decent amount of time, they arrive back at the home church, the sending church in Syrian Antioch, uh, with a report, a missionary report. What would your report look like after a trip like this? I think my first impulse would be to complain. Look at the calluses on my feet. Look at the scars. Look at this egg on my head. That's the one that really got me, right? And man, you wouldn't believe the injustice of the governments. And those, those Jews who are supposed to be my brothers, the things they did to me. You can't believe it. You just can't. That's what I, I think that'd be my report. Here's theirs. Uh, they arrived and gathered the church together in verse 27, and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. After all they'd been through, that was the focus of their report. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are the model of their exhortation to the churches. In verse 22, it says, They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul says a similar thing in Romans 8.17, that if we're God's adopted children, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may be glorified with Him. Uh, Christ's path to glory was a cross. Why should it be any different for us? Paul says of his own trials and his missionary journeys in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, we despaired of life itself. That's how severe the trial was. And yet in chapter uh, 4, verses 16 through 18, he says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Uh, I, I love this line from Calvin. If I were to get a tattoo, I think I'd, I'd put this on my... I'm not. I have to say that because my dad listens to these recordings and he has a hatred for tattoos. I'm not getting a tattoo. This is a great line. <laughs> the miseries of the godly are more happy than the doting dainties and delights of the world. The miseries of the godly are more happy than all the doting dainties and delights of the world. Are you afflicted with tribulations? I know that you are. Um, It may be that friends and family despise you for the beliefs you hold and, and try to impress on them, which is the particularly annoying part to most. Or maybe some other tribulation. It may be a trial of health or a trial of faith. It may be a trial of waiting, which I think is the worst of all trials. So whether your tribulations are more like Paul's or more like Job's, the devil's aim is to disrupt, to to pervert, and to divert. To cause us to question whether God really is the source of the rains from heaven in the fruitful seasons. Whether he really is the one who satisfies our hearts with gladness. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe, we could be the source of our own delights. That's what he wants us to think. Or his aim is to distract us from Christ, to convince us that we are fighting a losing battle because, after all, what kind of glory is there in a cross in suffering? What foolishness? Where's the strength? Where's the victory? Where's the glory? His aim is to deliver us uh, and to divert us from the Great Commission. This whole preaching business, the gospel, uh, what is it really accomplishing? Why don't you try political activism instead? Why don't you do something real? Why don't you just help people? Why do you have to disrupt everyone and ruins everyone's lives by trying to convince them they're wrong? Right? He, dis- he diverts us from the Great Commission. Or his aim is to intimidate us into a, a cowering corner, a puffed up chest like a roaring lion, wielding death and suffering as though they were somehow his to wield and shoving sin and guilt in our face and telling us we don't even deserve to be in the fight. This is what the devil tries to do. But why did Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil. So I asked by, I began by asking what is victory to us? And if we identify victory success as a Christian, with with how much we are liked, the consensus of the masses, um, unifying the culture. If we think victory in this life is the absence of affliction, if we think we've arrived when we're comfortable and when the world makes sense, then we are going to be whiners and complainers, bemoaning every tough bend in the road. But if we identify victory with the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the suffering of his people, that's when we'll finally realize that the road of tribulation is the road to the kingdom.
It's a joyous road to walk because we walk it with Christ. I'll conclude with a word from the Revelation. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Christ shall build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen.